Gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Combat Veteran Breakdown. I am Paul, your host, combat veteran, MMA fighter, YouTuber, and today I wanted to do an episode that's a little belated, right? But it's the new year, 2022. Definitely have a lot of big plans for the podcast, trying to get some really cool guests on. But for now, I wanted to do a sort of belated holiday episode and actually answer a very specific question. That question is, what do you do during Christmas when you're deployed? Right. So the first and most important answer is that no two people have the same deployment. Right. There are people, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines who were in places like Bagram Air Base or Jalalabad Airfield, which were sort of like mega complexes. And what they would generally do is have quite nice Christmas events. They would often have robust uh, Skype connections that they could video or call their family. They would frequently have really, really nice dining facilities with really, really uh, nice food, right? Often Christmas meals provided by contractors. And so some people, while no one uh, gets to be with their family on Christmas, um, in a lot of cases, you would have soldiers really try to make the best of the holidays. Uh, other soldiers, right, what we experienced in our very remote forward operating base would have a much more scaled-down version. However, the Army's logistics uh, was absolutely committed to trying to get every single soldier at least a, tr a special Christmas dinner. For us, that was things like pecan pie. Uh, there was, I think, ham or maybe roasted chicken or quail. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, they would try to do something to make it sort of an extra special treat. I think there may have even been like crab legs and steak. Yeah, I think crab legs and steak. There was some meal that there was like logistically easily able to get out to even remote sites. So, no, it was lobster and steak. I don't remember, but it was it was special, and no doubt you, the U.S. taxpayer, probably spent a fortune to get those out there. Because think about think about how you basically have to deep freeze the steak and seafood, and then keep it frozen all the way until you get it to these remote forward operating bases, which often might involve flying it via aircraft or shipping it through a dangerous uh, main supply route or MSR in a refrigerated truck which would have been, of course, a huge target for insurgents. In addition to just being very expensive to run, refrigerated trucks are extremely pricey and consume a ton of fuel and are just expensive to produce. And you have to remember that when it comes to shipping goods, right, there's always a trade off. So if you have, you know, there's some, for example, medical supplies that have to be refrigerated or frozen. And, uh, so when you have a very limited number of those trucks, you generally should keep it for those sort of things. Now, that doesn't really answer the question of what do you do to celebrate the holidays? And that varies as much as units vary. So in our unit, right, uh, we had, I believe we put together sort of an impromptu Christmas tree of sorts. I think we found some sort of uh, fake tree. It might not have even been a Christmas tree per se. And then, of course, our families sent over some Christmas lights, and uh, soldiers may either make their own ornaments, which can sometimes produce some pretty funny tongue-in-cheek ornaments, i.e. spent shell casings and 
uh, you know, grenade pins and that sort of thing. Uh, you can also sometimes get ornaments that are pictures, like sort of silly pictures of soldiers goofing around. Uh, but you would generally bring some sort of Christmas festivity to your uh, fob and command center, right? Oftentimes, you would also sort of screw around Santa hats. There's a photo somewhere on the internet, uh, or rather, somewhere on someone's Facebook, of myself and our XO um, with big reindeer antlers on, the little ones you can clip over your head. So you definitely try to get in the spirit, right? It's hard to, even when the weather doesn't look like Christmas, and the uh, environment doesn't look like Christmas, it's important to keep some of those traditions alive, right? So soldiers don't feel like they're totally cut off from their families, right? Because their families are back home. They are in touch with their families, right? And so it's extra tough to hear like, oh, your kids are having Christmas and you're not. You don't even see a tree, right? Um, from a tactical perspective, what do you do on Christmas? And the answer is, that often you have to maintain a greater level of security posture, right? It dates all the way back to actually the Revolutionary War. Well, it dates further than that. Attacking your enemy during their holidays, which can often also be your holidays, is a time-honored military tradition. Uh, the uh, in the, I think it was the Yom Kippur War, or the, yeah, I think it's the Yom Kippur War, is named after the Jewish holiday that uh, a coalition of Arab countries chose to attempt to uh, attack uh, Israeli forces, right, attack Israel. Uh, the famous Battle of Trenton took place on the day after Christmas when Washington's forces uh, surprised German mercenaries who they suspected would still be sleeping off the hangover from their Christmas Day celebrations. So it is a long, long and storied tradition to try to attack your enemy when not only their posture, when their posture is going to be uh, lower, right? It's very common even among, uh, you know, forces that are expecting an attack, i.e. Uh, like World War II or World War I or Korean forces where they, Korean forces, um, in or Ukrainian forces, right, where they are, is a front line, but the, that one side will realize, hey, because it's Christmas, because it's such an important holiday, they have just skeleton crews on duty, maybe their readiness isn't as high as it could be, or soldiers in the back lines, right, logistics and support personnel, they may be home on R&R. They may have really skeleton crews, meaning that the enemy force's ability to absorb or respond to or even counterattack is really, really going to be limited. Some of their key generals and decision makers back at their capital may not be able to respond quickly to a situation. So even if you have the same number of soldiers on the front line, the logistics and decision-making tree that stretches all the way back and often includes a lot of civilians, that can frequently be disrupted during holidays. And of course, there's always the psychological aspect to holiday attacks. One, because there is no way to make your enemy truly hate being at war with you than to take a day that should be one of celebration and enjoyment and merriment and turn it into one of combat or one in which their, their you know, brothers in arms are killed. 
or wounded. And so, of course, there's always just the morale piece. The threat or reality of an attack during the holiday means that a large portion of your enemy is going to have to be at a really high state of readiness. And so, in Afghanistan, we saw, first off, the uh, Ramadan period, right, which is sacred in Islam, uh, would see often higher rates of attacks. And I'm not familiar enough with the Islamic scholarship to understand why the Taliban believed they could engage in combat in a, uh, you know, one of the, the holiest months, which in which I believe no work is supposed to take place during daylight hours. Certainly no eating is supposed to take place during daylight hours. So to ramp up combat operations sounds uh, like pretty, like a pretty tall order. But again, they knew that the Afghan security forces, the Afghan government forces, were going to have a really, really, really low readiness posture. They were going to be easy to attack, and because of their adherence to Ramadan traditions, they were going to be in an even more weakened state, right? Because for those of you that don't know, Ramadan involves uh, fasting during daylight hours. So naturally, it's going to make perfect sense that for a holiday that the U.S. forces celebrate, but the Taliban and insurgent forces do not, such as Christmas or New Year or uh, Thanksgiving, that those would be prime times to actually attack U.S. forces. And so as a result, of course, to counter that, U.S. forces, we would often have our posture, not often, right? I was only there for one Christmas, right? One 12-month period. Uh, we would raise our defensive posture really, really high. So I actually volunteered to lead uh, Christmas patrols uh, where we would run screening operations outside of our base. Usually these patrols were not very extensive. We just didn't want enemy forces to be able to set up within, say, mortar distance or RPG distance or maneuvering distance. And we just wanted to demonstrate to the enemy that we were still very active, that our uh, defensive posture was very good. And as a uh, officer, right, I, it would be pretty messed up of me to ask soldiers under my command to do these Christmas operations to risk their lives on a holiday if I wasn't willing to do it myself. So I always raised my hand and said, yes, I will happily lead these Christmas patrols. And some of this is also my personal nature. I'm, I'm just the kind of guy that doesn't do well sitting still. Um, to me, the, the worst possible way to spend Christmas deployed would be to sit alone in my uh, bunk doing nothing, right? Doing nothing would just be a chance to ruminate. I like staying busy. Time tends to move a little faster once you have a routine and once you are uh, have something to do. So for me, being able to say, hey, I'm going to take six hours out of my Christmas. I'm not going to have to think too hard about it, and I'm just going to go on a patrol. You have to remember that for, I'm going to say 95, yeah, 95% of patrols, uh, nothing happened. The level of danger was extremely low. And these patrols, again, that are defensive in nature, were also like very, very low risk. These were in areas where the enemy at baseline wasn't particularly inclined to go. These were in villages usually where... Uh, 
the people were, if not friendly, at least uh, understood that the Americans spent a lot of money buying things from the local markets uh, and always tried to be fair with the local shop owners. And so uh, there was just a financial incentive for their shop owners to not have uh, the Americans get attacked, right? So we tended to you know, stay relatively close to the base. Also, because it's good to have support, right? If you are going to do just defensive sort of operations, um, i.e. screening patrols like what we were doing, uh, it's always good to have support nearby, right? There's no reason to range out further than, than necessary. So, yeah, overall, right, I I think when, you, when you're deployed generally, right, the having a routine is really 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 beneficial to your psychological help health right uh human beings like sort of animal counterparts we do our best when we can predict what will happen to us and when you can predict what a day will entail it allows you to feel as though you have some agency some control over the day imagine if you woke up every day and you didn't know where you would sleep that night you didn't know uh, what you would be doing, uh, you didn't know where or what you would be eating. Um, that level of psychological, persistent psychological stress, where you can't really do anything in response to it, is over time one of the most damaging effects to human beings' psyche. This is why children who grow up in, in what we call unstable environments, this is why they do so poorly. And it's because there's a lot Human beings, our stress response is designed to make us take action to ease our anxiety. You know, it's sort of like if you worry, you know, if our caveman ancestors worried that there was a tiger in the woods, then they would feel better if they lit a fire, right? And that would ease your anxiety. The anxiety would create the impetus to go through the pretty significant effort to, like, make a fire or to gather your friends or to, you know, make a spear, right? So, but when human beings can't do anything with their anxiety, when they feel anxiety, but they can't take steps to resolve it, i.e. the stress of never having enough money, or again, the stress of never knowing when, when uh, if an enemy is going to attack you, or the stress of just not knowing if you are going to be, go on a patrol, stay home, right, is really psychologically damaging to soldiers. So we always tried to create predictability in what a soldier could expect, usually in a given week is what we tried to do. The problem is, is that the enemy also learns your patterns. The enemy wants you to be predictable because if they know that, for example, every day you leave at your patrols at, let's say, 9 a.m., right, the classic business hours, then what they're going to do is know that, one, they could do anything they want before 9, and two, that if they want to attack you, their best times to do it are when you leave the base at 9 a.m. and you return to your base at 5 p.m. So you always want to mix up the length, the duration, the makeup, the everything about your operations that you can change, you do. Some days you're in vehicles, some days you're dismounted, some days you leave through the main entrance, some days through the back entrance or the side entrance, right? Some days you patrol very close to home. Some days you range out. Some days you hit the exact same village on a Monday and a Tuesday. Some days you 
don't, or some weeks, you just don't visit a certain village or certain district at all. You have to be as unpredictable as possible because that's going to keep the enemy from being able to dial in how to best attack you. The problem, right, so you see the two tensions that you're under as a uh, combat leader, right, between giving your soldiers the predictability they need to wake up every day and do their jobs well, Again, imagine how well you would do your job if you literally didn't know what that job entailed. And the unpredictability to keep your combat operations uh, unpredictable, right? So what we would do is, again, try to offer soldiers some level of predictability across the week. And we would try to give them a schedule, right? Because obviously the enemy doesn't know our schedule, but our soldiers certainly do. So every soldier in the platoon would know. We tried to have them working... Um, six days a week and give them one day off, right? And we would say, we would let them know uh, in a given week, usually say, okay, in the next week, your day off is going to be Tuesday. And obviously, you, are you really off? No, you're in a forward operating base, right? There's not a lot of off to do, but it's usually a chance to do things like maintain your weapon, catch up on any personal paperwork. A lot of our soldiers took college or correspondence courses, um, it would be a chance to catch up on your coursework. They could go to the gym and just sleep in, right? And, you know, there would always usually be an NCO who would be at the base who would be able to, like, check in on them. And that NCO would know, hey, today you've got, you know, private Snuffy is going to be off. So make sure they're, you know, get log into their college class. But the whole point was to give soldiers a sense of, one, that they had predictability over their lives and a day off to decompress. Of course, you also tried to sit there and, and make the time leading up to a patrol all look very similar, right? So you knew that on a day where you were assigned to a patrol, you would be expected to wake up, you know, four hours before the patrol. You would maintain your weapon. You would prepare the vehicles, check their fuel, check the maintenance records, uh, load the vehicle up with the right supplies. Uh, you would get everything all set. You would attend the, the, the mission briefing. Then you would mount up, uh, do your PCCs, PCIs, your, sorry, your um, final equipment checks. And then you would mount up the vehicles, leave, go on your patrol, right? Which, which we tried to, again, give them some level of predictability for what the exact objective was of a given patrol. And then you would come back and you would do your PT. You know, we didn't do like break yourself off PT, right? Because no, we don't need to injure soldiers. But again, it gives them some structure to be like, hey, you can burn out the last little bit of your energy by working out. And it was very casual. It was like, hey, you know, maybe you're going to work out by playing some football, going on a jog, uh, hitting the weight room, right? We kept it. We just wanted soldiers to do some sort of physical activity to maintain their bodies, to stay healthy, and to make sure they weren't going to like fail their PT test when they got back. And again, importantly, just to give them structure to their to their day. Um, but it's hard, right? And reality always gets a vote. And you know, when we, especially the first three months we deployed, it was really hard to let soldiers find that sort of of rhythm. We call it the battle rhythm. The battle rhythm is that predictability where you as a soldier know what's going to happen week to week. And once you know what's going to happen, you can get better at it, right? If you know that you're going to do six patrols uh, six patrols a week, or in my case, like 12, 
right, I got better and better about saying, okay, I know exactly how to get the right intelligence reports. And I was able to request more and more refined intelligence reports. Whereas if I woke up one day and thought I was going to be relocating to a different FOB, or I thought that our unit was going to be assigned to a totally different like base defense duty, totally different intelligence, totally different planning process, totally different requirements, and you don't really get a chance to get better at what you do until you have a battle rhythm, right? It's no different than going to your college classes, right? You go to college, you go to your classes, and the first time, it's like a monumental effort just to wake up on time, get to class, show up with the right stuff, and have done the homework, right? And then over time, once you learn your battle rhythm for that semester, you learn all the tricks to make it work. You know which days you gotta go to bed early, you know which classes are going to check the homework uh, studiously, which ones you, which ones don't really expect that, right? Which classes um, have a ton of reading that isn't necessary, which classes have, you know, the books that the professor absolutely expects you to read. And, but only with a set schedule can you start to get better. And that's true of military operations as well, right? You get your schedule and you're able to uh, get better sort of within that box of a schedule. And so that's why as a leader, I tried everything I could to sort of um, be an umbrella. Because the army, if it left to its own devices, will absolutely destroy any predictability, right? And they will just make it feel like utter total chaos all of the time. And so as a good officer, your job is to put up a little umbrella and give those soldiers the time and space to do their jobs well, right? The truth is, I don't think I could fix a vehicle. And yet I was the hand receipt holder for 12 MATVs for like, it's like $15 million worth of vehicles. And I couldn't tell you one part on them. But what I could tell you is that my soldiers, those teams, those young NCOs, they owned that vehicle, right? And so my job was to make sure that they weren't, they had the time to do the maintenance they needed to do on them, that they had the authority that they could go to the maintenance people and say, hey, I'd like this part. Hey, how long is this vehicle going to take? And, you know, that they knew that they had the knowledge they needed to interact with them, right? Because nothing is more irritating than, you know, some NCO demanding that their vehicle's fan belt get fixed, and you're the mechanic, and you're like, listen, man, the fan belts have been on back order for two months. Like, it's not going to get up. It, it, it didn't get up yesterday. But generally, as an officer, you want to try to make sure your soldiers both have the space and the resources they need to do their jobs well and to protect them from the Army's BS so that they can get good at their jobs, right? And by doing so, that's... A big part of leadership, right? That's you getting good at your job, right? So, anyway, uh, I guess this started as a conversation about the nature of, of holidays, but really, it's about how to. I, I guess when you're just a leader in general, right? That you want to create both predictability for your subordinates, but also stay flexible, stay mobile, stay able to. Uh, you know, respond to changing circumstances and the tension between those two. It's, there's no right answer, right? You know, my, my wife works for a startup company and that start, startups are all about flexibility. They, they pivot and change 
every day, it sounds like, you know? And so for her, she's like, man, I really wish I had more predictability. But you just can't if you want to be successful as a startup. You have to be ever-changing, right? In contrast, like, you know, I worked for the government, right? Something very rigid, very protocolized to the point where it gets pretty frustrating. And you say, man, I wish we had the ability to be more flexible and not have to do everything just so. So no two jobs are alike, and that's true of being a soldier. There are positions where no two days feel the same. Um, and that's sort of what some, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's soldiers where it's like no two days feel the same. And I'm sure there are soldiers also deployed who go, man, every day feels like Groundhog's Day. And it's just the same exact thing again and again. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for watching. First off, if you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes, please, please hit Give me a rating. I would like that rating to be five stars, but, you know, I, I don't think they let me tell you to. If you like it, rate it five stars. I'll say that. And be sure to follow or subscribe or whatever. It makes a huge difference. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, of course, hit the like button. Comment below with other topics or other questions you want me to address or if there are any guests you want me to have on, right? Because in 2022, my goal is to have this be the year of the podcast guest. And so you guys let me know if there's anyone you want me to talk to. And uh, other than that, man, thanks for watching. And until next time, I'll see you guys later.